Hi, everyone. This is David Cohen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Brad Feld. Hey, Brad. And this is the Give First podcast. And in the startup world, Give First means simply trying to help anyone, especially entrepreneurs, without any expectation of getting anything back. So we'll be talking to mentors and founders about what Give First looks like in action and how it makes great entrepreneurship possible. We polled everyone and they said consistently that their favorite part of the show was the legal mumbo jumbo. So here it is. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion and does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversations for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal business investment or tax advice and is not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities in some of the companies discussed in this podcast. Got it? Welcome to today's Give First podcast. It's Brad Feld. I'm here today with Matt Harris. Matt's a relatively recent friend, four or five years, but somebody I've known for a long time through a couple of other connections that are linked back to Techstars. Today, Matt and I both serve on the Avid Exchange Board and have done that since Bank Capital Ventures led an investment that we participated in. He's also been longtime friends with Mark Solon, and hopefully we'll get back into some of the history that Matt and Mark shared. For those of you listening, Mark has been involved with Techstars almost from the beginning as well. And for a number of years, was uh, front and center in all the investing activity that Techstars did. Also, my partner, Seth Levine, has some entertaining stories about Matt. Hopefully, we'll hear at least one entertaining story from Matt about Seth. Another linkage that we have with Matt through Techstars is SendGrid. One of Matt's partners led an investment round in SendGrid that I think was the Series C, or SendGrid being one of the most visible unicorns within Techstars and went public up, up by Twilio. But prior to that was, I think, actually the first accelerator company to do a public offering. So to this day, we still have great fondness and affection for SendGrid. And Bain actually invested at a not obvious time for the company in terms of its success. It had been just when there had been a CEO transition to Samir Delokia. And Ajay, who was um, Matt's partner, decided that he wanted to get involved in anything that Samir was involved in. So there we go. Let's start off with just a short origin story. How did you get involved in tech and entrepreneurship? I started in investing before I started in tech. I started my career at Bain & Company Consulting, and then after a year of that, found my way to Bain Capital in 1995. And as you recall, Brad, of course, obviously there was tech in 1995, but it was still pre-internet or pre-commercial internet. So I did private equity at Bank Capital in the mid-90s, but stumbled on what we would now call a fintech deal. We bought a credit bureau, turned it into something called Experian for folks who've encountered Experian. And I just got the bug. I was really enraptured by like seeing what tech could do to a company. When I was at Bain & Company, my biggest client was Digital Equipment Corporation. You'll remember DEC. I don't know how many listeners will, but and so I saw a tech company die, basically, get swallowed up as it missed the next wave. And then I saw one in, in Experian really being kind of born, a sleepy credit bureau being transformed into a tech, turned out to be now a tech giant. And so I decided, like, I had to get out of the private equity game and into venture. And so that was really my origin story. So early on, sort of tail end of the internet bubble, you had a lot of excitement because of the firm that you helped start and were deeply involved in for a while. So maybe spend a little time talking about Village Ventures and what that journey looked like. 
Yeah, excitement's a good term, positive and negative. I left Bank Capital in 1997, so I really was only there a couple, three years. And what happened was I had gone to a small liberal arts college called Williams in Western Massachusetts in a rural community of 6,000 called Williamstown. And my college roommate, this guy Bo Peabody, had started a company in our dorm room called Tripod, which was an early online company that became an early web company was the ninth most traffic website on the internet, competed with GeoCities in the we help you build a homepage segment of the early internet. Think and of so all it was going companies that nobody knows of, right? You didn't even link it I back know. to something like Lycos that, well, nobody would remember Lycos either. <laughs> exactly. I was going to go with Angel Fire, but I figured maybe <laughs> even you didn't come across that. So anyway, we all like helped to start this company and it's growing in Williamstown. It's got 70 employees that raised venture capital from NEA. And Williams College is thinking, we need more of this. We need more employers like this locally. And so they they didn't have to convince me. They said they'd put up half a million dollars if I would leave Bain Capital and come back to Williamstown to start my own firm to basically do economic development with one half a million dollar limited partner in the fund. And, but I was 24 years old and that sounded great to me. So I did that, got a golden retriever and Audrey and I started this firm called BCI in 1997 with our half a million dollars. And you'll remember that was an incredible time to be in VC. Like everything we did worked. Tripod, we sold to Lycos. That was great. We did a bunch of other things that worked. I mean, that fund was marked at 10, 12x at one point. And so we raised another fund. We again, being me and this golden retriever. (laughs) And then finally, after two years of this like uninterrupted success, Bo sold Tripod and he and I started a firm together called Village Ventures. And basically we were like, look, if it can work here, in a town of 6,000 people, we can do venture capital anywhere. And venture capital in the United States is so concentrated in California and Boston, New York, maybe, that there's this gaping hole in secondary and tertiary cities that have intellectual capital, but no venture capital. And so we build Village Ventures to be kind of a platform to allow local funds to get started on our infrastructure. What were some of the funds that got started? Well, you mentioned Mark Solon. So one of the first places I flew was Boise, Idaho. That was my life for two or three years. We called fund development. I would fly around the country, went to almost every state and started about 25 different funds. Actually, my first hire at Village Ventures was Bo and me. And then my first hire was a woman named Gina Ramundo, who we brought on to lead up this fund development effort. And she just got sworn in as the new Secretary of Commerce under Joe Biden. She had ended up being governor of Rhode Island. So Gene and I, we went to Boise and we met Mark Solon, who had just moved to Boise recently. His wife was from there and he decided he was going to start a venture fund. And our proposition was basically a fund administration platform. It was actually pretty hard to start a venture fund back then. This is before Carta and before AngelList. So we provided all that infrastructure and then we would sit on the investment committee of these funds. We'd help them raise capital from local limited partners and we would co-invest with them in the deals they did. That was sort of our strategy at Village. We were not a fund of funds. We had our own money that we managed, but our deal sourcing was notionally this network of 25 funds in Boise and Charlottesville, Virginia, and Middlebury, Vermont, and Bloomington, Indiana, and again, so on and so forth, secondary and tertiary cities that generally had universities that could produce intellectual property. So, you know, Brad, I'll cut to the chase, though. It didn't really work. (laughs) I mean, it was really challenging. We were very good at raising money. We raised 
billion and a half dollars across this network. And we built a really, really profitable fund administration business. But it didn't work in terms of sourcing proprietary deal flow back to our funds. Because, you know, venture capital doesn't work that way. Venture capital is about this alchemy between an investor and a founder and the support that one can provide the other. And actually, each can provide the other in many cases and the amazing things that they can build in concert. And it's not about some strategy that makes sense to a Harvard Business School case. It's not about an elaborate machine. And as a 26-year-old, I didn't know that, but I certainly learned it. When you think back to that time, and obviously being in your mid-20s, this sort of incredibly rapid rise of the internet bubble, you were taking lessons from some other people. Who were some key mentors back at the time? And sort of how did you think about interacting with them? Or how were they helpful to you? When we started, Bo and I started Village Ventures, we actually raised venture capital into our GP, which worked really well for us. So we raised money from a guy named Mark Nunnally, who was a very senior partner at Bain Capital, and a guy named Paul Mater, who was one of the founders of Highland Capital. And those two gentlemen joined our board and kicked the heck out of us. I mean, it was just tough love. You know, they're both incredible humanists. I love them both deeply. I don't use that word casually. They are incredibly important to me. But Mark Donnelly once said to me, if there isn't tension in the board of a venture-backed company, you're not doing it right. And I'm not personally a person who thrives on tension, uh, either as then a CEO and now a board member. But I, I do think he's not wrong that everything's too cozy and backslapping and smiling. You know, you're not getting at the real issues. So they both were from that school. And so I learned a lot from them. I learned about venture capital. I learned about company building. I was really the CEO of this 70-person company. I learned that I'm not a great CEO. I learned about how to support founders from having been a moderately unsuccessful one myself. And there are still these aphorisms these guys would say that I repeat today to myself and others. This point about strategy is a great one. So we were obsessed with our own nonsense. We had this data that suggested that venture capital's concentration was unhealthy for the economy and produced high, high valuations in some places and low, low valuations in other places. I remember spouting off about this and Mark Nunnally just took me aside and said, look, just focus on the company. Just focus on building, helping to build great companies. And all this other strategy stuff is an input into that. But that is the central process you're involved in. And I just couldn't see it, Brad. At that time, I just couldn't see it. Finally, it got through my thick skull. But ultimately, we did prevail at Village Ventures and it all worked out despite how desperate things seemed in 0203. And really, a huge amount of the credit goes to Paul and Mark. You have much more time with Paul than I do, but... He was impactful on me in the in the 1990s as well. In fact, the very first venture fund that I was ever an investor in was Highland Capital Three, and I got invited in to be an investor in that. I don't remember what the year was, 97 or 98, and it was really a function of being active as an angel investor now, but in and around the Boston VC scene. I remember doing a couple of things with Paul as an entrepreneur and just learning an immense amount from him. There was a board I was on with him and Jerry Colonna called Mainspring. I don't know if you remember that yeah. one. but um, John Connolly ended up as CEO, right? John Connolly was CEO. And I wasn't on the board, but I was in some advisory thing. And just being able to sit in the room and watch and learn the dynamics so early on in my own experience, starting to shift into venture was incredibly powerful. 
I don't want to get us bogged down in a cul-de-sac here, but Paul Mater, two quick stories. One is I was in a really bad car accident early on in our relationship and I ended up fine, but I really mangled my hand. It's actually still quite scarred, but in those days, it was really quite scarred. And Paul and I were, I was in his office for a very tense meeting. I mean, we had failed, right? We had launched in January 2000 and Bo and I, you know, this is the peak of the bubble. And we had this business plan. We raised $100 million. And two years later, it just all looked terrible. And that's not great for Paul Mater, right? Who was 25 of that 100. And I'm in his office and we're having this really challenging conversation. He's just, I can see him looking at my hand. And he just stopped the meeting and he's like, can we just talk about you? Are you okay? Like, can I get you something for that? I mean, it was just like all of the tension, all of the business stuff, all the math just evaporated from the room. And we were just two humans, two hurt you know, humans in, in various ways. And I'll just never forget that. I just aspire to that kind of like thread of humanism through all of the challenging stuff we do. And by the way, it's more challenging for founders by about 100x than it is for us. But we have to have these challenging conversations. And Paul knew how to do that. And then the second related is I had to pitch his partners. And there was one meeting I was pitching Dan Nova for why they shouldn't just shut us down. And I did a terrible job. I was just like, yeah, you're probably right. We suck. I didn't sell at all. I thought, my job was just to just lay out there like a defeated animal, right? And, and just hope they would have pity on me. And meeting went terrible. Dan crushed me. And I was sitting there with Paul after. And Paul's like, you know what? We actually want you to sell us, buddy. We need to know that you can sell and that you believe in what you're doing. I also never forget that. Like entrepreneurs need to sell. They never need to lie. But the founders need to have this ability to be resilient and continue to sell even when the facts are against you. And Paul knew very well that nuanced line between candor and transparency, which are essential, and resiliency and, and being promotional when you need to and selling. And he really taught me how to find the right balance. Awesome. Tears in the corners of my eyes thinking about that and thinking about sort of the dynamics of those moments, you know, having been on the investor side now for many years of so many of those things, but even teleporting back to when I was on the entrepreneur side of it and just realizing these intense moments, just hoping the other person on the other side has a little bit of empathy for the misery you're in in that particular moment. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but the power of the investor does. So you evolved out of that. And from where I sit, you've really become the master of fintech investing. And you sort of alluded to that at the beginning of the story with the experience example. But how did that evolve? I mean, fintech wasn't a thing until the last five years or so, but you were way ahead of it. Well, I mean, it really comes out of failure, like so much of at least my lived experience. We're back in 2001 and the Village Ventures thing, this grand plan didn't appear to be working. Thankfully, it did work out ultimately, but I was in a nadir of my career. And I realized that if I was going to be successful at venture capital, I needed a focus strategy that was going to allow me to be an expert. Because the way I saw VCs, they were generally like very good at sales. And they're extroverted and energetic. And thinking of like John Doerr and Tim Draper and guys like that, who are just like, very optimistic, bouncy people. And I'm just not like that. You know, I'm sort of introverted and shy, really. And 
I only feel confident when I really know what I'm talking about. And so I decided I was going to pick a lane where no one else was operating and where it had sufficient complexity to where I could maintain like a durable competitive advantage over people in the off chance that anyone else was interested. And so I picked financial services. I, I said, you know, there's payments, lending, investing, and insurance. Those are like the four things that are the underlying activities within financial services. All of them have technology. And even though not a lot of founders are focused on it and no other VC is focused on it, like that should change over time. So I'm just going to become like the world expert on those four things. And I may have a career of obscurity. That's quite possible, <laughs> but that's fine because I will be a leader. In you'll be, you'll be the smartest tiny... obscure person in the world. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's where I was. My 20s were this meteoric thing where like when I was 26, I was on the cover of the Wall Street Journal and a dot matrix picture of me and revolutionizing venture capital. And then 18 months later, I was an idiot getting thrown out of Highland's office for losing their money. And I, I just needed something. I needed something that I could be very certain of that would anchor my identity as an investor. And it felt like a terrible choice for at least a decade, to be honest. But it was essential and it served its purpose from day one. Because when anyone said, okay, like Matt Harris, what's his story? There was an answer. He's that FinTech guy. Like, I don't know what that is. I don't know why he's doing it, but that's what he is. And honestly, that meant the world to me. You've been part of an organization that from the outside can feel pretty complicated that obviously supported that journey of yours, which is Bain Capital. Talk a little about how somebody from the outside should think about what Bain Capital and Bain Capital Ventures is and sort of how the pieces fit together. The brief history is Bain Capital was spun out of Bain & Company in 1984 by Mitt Romney to basically take this culture of thinking deeply about companies and industries and then try to apply to investing. And I think that's basically still it. It's a bunch of folks now, you know, a thousand people. When I joined, it was 2025 20, in 1995. And we do a bunch of different things, private equity still, obviously venture, growth equity, credit. But it's culturally the same. It's basically we have a set of ideas and a set of frameworks for thinking about companies and, and thinking about industries. And we try to leverage that common culture and common set of ideas and frameworks to be successful and different fields of endeavor within investing. And we're more successful in some than others, but successful enough in aggregate to have raised $120 billion and you know continue to go from strength to strength. I think we're one of the largest, if not the largest, firms like ours that are still private. So you might think of Blackstone and Carlisle and KKR and Apollo, et cetera. And we're sort of on that list with TPG, I would say, you know, that have remained private and will continue to remain private. So that's Bain Capital. It's a bunch of nerdy, wonky business thinkers, not finance thinkers, trying to bring a business-oriented mentality to what can often seem like a highly kind of financial set of activities. And 20 years ago, we tried to see how this could be useful in venture capital. And it took us a while, you know, because private equity and venture capital are so different as to really not even be useful to one another in most ways. I mean, private equity is control-oriented and often adversarial and inherently financial, whereas venture capital, in my experience, is decidedly minority-focused in terms of what percent you own of a company. And, and in every other way, you're an advisor. You have 
maybe influence. You have no power, generally speaking. And so you have to be consultative. You have to be nice. The best idea wins. So you have to really have good ideas and a reputation and a manner consistent with being an advisor, not an owner. And so it took Bain Capital a while. You know, I was at Village Ventures for the first decade of the life of BCV, and it took them a while to find their sea legs. But guys like Ajay and others ultimately coalesced a culture that took those ideas around building companies and thinking about industries into an asset class that's about minority ownership and supporting founders. And so that's sort of the Venn diagram is those two bubbles where they intersect. When you think about the evolution of your own career, shifting from being the mentee to today being the mentor, and still obviously my experience with you being a voracious learner and sort of deeply engaged in trying to figure things out. But for a lot of people listening, one of the things I often say is that the most powerful mentee-mentor relationships are ones that become peer relationships over time, where the mentee and the mentor learn from each other versus one way or the other. We could use Paul again, but other than Paul, maybe give another example of an entrepreneur that you've had that kind of back and forth experience with over the last five or six years and maybe a couple of the things that you've done differently than you think a lot of other VCs do in terms of exploring that relationship. Yeah, I'll pick a guy named Flint Lane. Flint is a serial founder in the payment space. His current company is called Bill Trust and uh, it's a public company now just here recently. We invested eight years ago and I joined the board. It was you know, maybe a $10 million revenue business. And you know it's well north of 10 times bigger than that now. And Flint is a classic founder in many ways. He's headstrong. He's independent. He is a former engineer, highly structured thinker, but also very emotional. You know, I find that the instinct to start a company, the instinct to overthrow an industry, to be transgressive, to change the world, rarely comes from the result of coolly analytical processes. It is almost always accompanied by a chip on your shoulder or whatever the source of passion is. There is also passion there, even if it's not obvious. And I I think I learned so much about those dynamics from Flint, who comes across as intense and analytical, and he is, again, an engineer. He's also deeply human in ways that It's important for him that I tap into that as well in our interaction. And it's not to say that I'm not human. I think I have a lot of empathy, but I'm also comfortable with cool and efficient communication styles. I've needed to learn that sometimes I need to spend more time on a topic and sometimes I need to be more nakedly human with certain types of founders. And I would say even most types of founders actually appreciate that in their investor. There's things I've said to Flint five years ago that he will bring up that clearly stuck with him. And it's made me not cautious about what I say, but it's made me more thoughtful about all my communication with founders. Because, you know, your self-image, Brad, I think is probably more like mine. Like, I'm a service provider. You don't dwell on things the guy from PricewaterhouseCoopers says to you, probably. And that's kind of like where I am, right? Like the founder is the center of this story. And we're there trying to support her, trying to support him in building their company. But in fact, you know, in many cases, they don't view it that way. They view you as a mentor and a board member. So technically their boss, an arbiter of their success. I can't tell you how many founders it ultimately emerges 
think about our return on their investment. They want to be our biggest return in a given fund. They want to return our whole fund. And I'm sitting there thinking, why would you care about that? You know, like you've got all your employees and your customers, and I'm just a tiny piece of your whole stakeholder package. But I've learned from Flint and from other founders that, no, it's a really essential two-way relationship. And therefore, as investors, we need to be incredibly careful, not reserved, not restrained, but just careful and thoughtful about how we show up vis-a-vis our founders. Because the things we say, the things we don't say, the look on our face can have massive unintended consequences if we're not thoughtful. Love it. Let's shift as we sort of get to the tail end of this into a couple of rapid fire questions. I'm going to ask you questions, 30, 60 second answers, and feel free to be as amusing as you'd like. First one, given Air Village and flying all around the United States, searching for entrepreneurial things in places well before, you know, Steve Case drove his bus around the rise of the rest tour or Techstar started opening accelerators everywhere. If you fast forward to 2021, what do you think the best up and coming city for entrepreneurship is? I've got to say Miami, right, Brad? I feel like it'd be uh, bucking the conventional wisdom to say anything different. And I actually think it's probably right. I mean, there's a nonprofit supporting organization called Endeavor. Brad, I know you've been helpful with it. I serve on the global board of, and we have a purview through that to look at dynamic cities in the United States. And in fact, well before the pandemic move to Miami, we saw incredible LATAM-focused, in many cases, entrepreneurship out of Miami. So I had been bullish on Miami, and I think there's lots of reasons to be increasingly so now. Yeah, I'll go with Miami. All right. I look forward to seeing how people feel about Miami in the middle of July. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The air conditioning is robust, and there's still no state taxes. I think that's (laughs) how Well, I'm a big fan of Miami. My grandparents lived in Hollywood Hills, and they spent much, much time there. So it's really fun to watch Miami come into its own as an entrepreneurial place. How about favorite place to visit? And actually, let's toss July into that question. So in the middle of summer, if you had to go somewhere, where would you go? Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, it can be near your partner, Seth, but it, it is actually kind of my happy place. It's Martha's Vineyard. We just recently bought a farm there. That sounds grand. It ain't. It's really a ramshackle house from 1726 and just some unkempt acreage. Martha's Vineyard is a lot more rural than people give it credit for. And so my wife and I and our six kids are going to try to do some sustainable farming. We're really excited about that. So you will definitely find me operating farm equipment on Martha's Vineyard in July if I'm doing it right. As a kid who grew up in Texas and whose parents have a farm an hour north of Texas, if you need tractor recommendations, I got you covered. You want a 19, you know, something from the 1950s or 1960s that's red. I'm your guy. (laughs) Next one. If you were an insect, what would you be? And uh, you can ponder that while everybody sort of thinks about what I just did with that question. Ladybug. Ladybug? Not not even hard. Yes. I love Ladybug. I think they're incredibly aesthetically pleasing. I love in particular their communal animals, not in the mindless way that I think of ants. I have great respect for ants, but ladybugs, like if you have a house in the Northeast, you know it's spring when you see these like communities of ladybugs everywhere, you know, emerging from wherever they wintered and coming to sit on your windowsills. And then finally, I think, I believe it is the case, and if it's not, please don't correct me, that the plural of ladybug is a loneliness of ladybugs which I just think is the most beautiful, ironic, 
<laughs> name for a community of anything. I sort of, in my own mind, having thought about this, like I assume that was chosen ironically because again, they look to me like they're just families, like they operate in families. I know what gift I'm getting you now. Uh, if you could, if you could choose anyone you wanted to have dinner with, dead or alive, and it could be more than one person, what would that dinner table look like? It would be a collection of folks from ancient history. You know, in my spare time, I read history as a general matter. I'm generally military history because, to me, like the military aspects of history are those fulcrum points. But the real instinct here is is history and just sort of the like unknowable aspects of what's happened in the last 3,000 years and doing my best to know whatever parts of them can be illuminated. I think a fascinating year in history would be 1820 or so. If you think about what was happening in politics, in the military, in the arts. So you'd have like Beethoven and you'd have Napoleon. You would have one of the big major salon painters there. You know, we have this idea in our family that of timelines, like you imagine a wall and you have world historical events, military events, scientific events, artistic events. And if you could just draw a vertical stripe through 1820 across all those dimensions of their own time frames, and then get those people together to say like, what was happening? Like, wh- why was that happening in Italy and happening in, in London and happening in South America and happening in the United States all at the same time, like Jacksonian democracy is born the same time that Beethoven is writing. Like how did, I mean, it's just like, I guess it shares a democratic instinct, but like how were ideas moving around? What was happening in science? So it would be like that kind of dinner where you could have that mashup of great minds who are simultaneous, but independently acting. And I think 1820 would be a great year to collect from. It's powerful to go back 200 years and think about what that would be like in addition to not having the internet, right? Right. We're so proud of ourselves for how much we communicate and how many different things we do. And just the idea of that happening without our contemporary communication at all, right? Like the way that you communicate with somebody was you write a letter and maybe three months later they get it. Maybe. Yeah. And yet you see the steam engine invented in three different places at once, right? I mean, it, there is a motive force behind human affairs that's obviously accelerated through this incredible coordination mechanism of the internet, but it was existent. You know, I mean, you see this happen and, you know, the great inventions in China and in the Arab Middle East, then both propagate, but also separately developed at the same time. Like there's something contagious about ideas that spread well before we had this instantaneous pervasive connectivity. Last question. Talk about a nonprofit that you think is awesome that you support. Well, we mentioned Endeavor, but I, there's one that is totally off the radar that I'm deeply passionate about. It's called Greater New York, but I think of it as a model for any city. And what we do very quietly at Greater New York is we connect leaders in New York City, which is so big as to feel anonymous many times. So these are folks that run law firms, that run businesses, that run investment firms with nonprofit CEOs or executive directors for two-year-long confidential private mentor-mentee relationships. I can say this, this was publicly announced, but I spent two years mentoring the, the executive director of the Fresh Air Fund, which is a very, very important nonprofit in New York. And she is an incredible nonprofit leader 
you know what it's like as a nonprofit. I'm sure you love your board chair. She had an incredible board chair, but that's a loaded relationship. That's your boss. And all those members of the board are your boss. And again, this woman had incredible assets in that regard in terms of great board. But just having someone she could spend time with once a month or more who had no agenda, who had no stake in it, and just knew how organizations worked and could be a sounding board for her. I just saw it, again, regardless of my own personal qualities, I just saw having that be instrumental in her personal development and professional success. And so Greater New York is this, there's a four-person staff and a small board of directors that I'm on, and we cultivate these leaders and we connect them confidentially and privately to these major nonprofit executives, and it's just magic. And it's all in service of making New York City a better place to live by making these nonprofit institutions stronger than they otherwise would be. And it's something that I wish for every city. Wonderful. Matt, thanks for the time today. Always a delight to spend any kind of time with you. And it's a double delight to get to share some of you with all the Give First listeners out there. So thank you. Honored to be on the show, Brad. My relationship with you over the past five years on Avid and beyond has been a whole new chapter in my evolution as an investor. I learned a huge amount from you. I decided not to embarrass you by naming you as one of my mentors, but it's surely the case. And so thank you for having me on the show. More importantly, thanks for being Brad Feld. Back at you. See you soon. Thanks a lot for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or who you'd like to hear next on Give First. And please leave a rating and review, ideally a good one, and reach out anytime to podcasts at techstars.com or on Twitter, I'm at David Cohen. See you next time. Don't forget, give first.